Hello, my name is Artemis Fotiadu and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Matthew Jones, author of the official history of the UK strategic nuclear deterrent, covering nuclear policy from 1945 to 1970. I first asked him about the Attlee government's decision to develop the British atomic bomb. The formal decision is taken um, by a small ministerial committee um, in Attlee's government in January 1947 to manufacture a British atomic bomb. Um, But the decision has really been uh, foregrounded by developments over the previous few years. Um, For a start, Britain had been at the forefront of research work into uh, nuclear technology and nuclear power in the um, late 1930s and early 1940s, at the beginning of the Second World War, it really British scientists that had first, an emigres working in Britain, who'd first come up with uh, the idea you could actually use uh, uh, fissionable products in order to create an atomic explosion, to, uh, to create an explosive um, effect that would be deliverable in a bomb-type um, container. So in other words, that you could uh, manufacture a usable military weapon out of the um, discovery of nuclear fission and the explosive qualities of nuclear fission. Um, This was an internationally recognised phenomenon, but it was um, in Britain where some of the earliest applied research work was done into how that uh, knowledge of physics could be translated into a deliverable weapon of of sorts. And so British scientists have worked on these ideas in 1941 and 1942, and then in 1942-1943 have begun discussions with the Americans of how they might pull efforts um, into a combined project eventually, of course, became the Manhattan Project, which was run out of Los Alamos in New Mexico, um, primarily, of course, led by American research scientists, but with a small British team working alongside the Americans um, from early 1944 onwards and making an important contribution to the program. And it had always, be, it had always been the expectation of um, British officials that there would effectively be a, a British program after the war. There was no belief, I don't think, that this research work would stop that there would be a kind of truncation of that work that had begun during the war. The question for many was whether it would be done in collaboration with the United States or whether it would be done independently as a national um, stand-alone program, if you like. So there's that set of considerations. When Britain emerges from the Second World War in 1945, it does so into a very uncertain world um, where um, the restoration of peace and security um, is, is, seems to be a far, far away kind of object when Britain is faced by the threat, as it sees it, from the Soviet Union um, with a very large conventional army in Central Europe. And so British, British policymakers, British defence planners felt, particularly because they'd gone through the Second World, Second World War experience where Britain had been bombed from the air, felt very vulnerable to attack, particularly aerial attack, because uh, of its experience at the hands of the Luftwaffe in 1940-41, but also then under um, V um, weapon attack by the Germans, the V1 and V2 um, powered bombs and then rockets in 1944-45, there was a belief that um, Britain was particularly vulnerable to aerial attack and there was a, a need for a means of potential retaliation against such attacks, especially in an atomic world. If Britain's adversaries of the future, and the Soviet Union was clearly what was being meant here, had possession of atomic weapons and it was believed the Soviet Union would eventually gain possession of atomic weapons, it would work on such things, then the only means of defence against such a potential adversary was the means of reprisal, of retaliation. And so the very earliest theories of deterrence are really built up 
in British official defence thinking, which predates the Second World War but becomes very, very strong after 1945 as well. Um, there are other things to consider as well. Britain had a very strong self-image of itself as a strong, modern, industrial uh, power, which was scientifically advanced and could master this kind of technology, master the technology of nuclear power and nuclear weapons. It's, as I said before, its scientists have been in the forefront of work on that in the Second World War, and it emerged from the Second World War, though in a far, far weaker position, economically speaking, still quite confident of its own scientific and industrial prowess and abilities to, to, to rise to this kind of challenge. There is also the consideration of Britain's um, great power status. I mean, Britain does consider itself to be a major military power, alongside the United States, um, the key power to, you know, with responsibility of upholding international peace and security. One of the five permanent members of the new UN Security Council, entering a very uncertain world, where support from the United States, at least in the um, period between, say, 1945 and 1948-49, could not be assured. Um, the United States seemed to be retreating into another form of isolation in that um, the US demobilized very quickly after 1945, pulled its forces away from, um, from Europe, and um, did not commit itself yet to the defense of Western Europe. That was only going to come in 1949 with the signature of the North Atlantic uh, Treaty and the formation of the NATO alliance. So in this very difficult, uncertain period of the late, late 1940s, and once it was apparent that there was no opportunity for um, there being international control of atomic energy, say through, through the United Nations, um, British defense planners and ministers and officials in the Labour government were pretty much um, uh, agreed that the development of a national atomic program was probably Britain's best means of defense in this world. So you mentioned um, US knowledge on nuclear weapons and the British contribution to that. Mm. Why don't they share this know-how? Did the mm. fact that this was a Labour government mm. have anything to do with it? Not particularly. I mean, the the, um, the key development here is the passage by Congress in August 1946 of something called the McMahon Act, which prohibited the transfer of well, U.S. nuclear weapons, but also nuclear technology, th to uh, other countries. Um, there were several reasons why the United States um, Congress passed the McMahon Act. I mean, they were very keen, Americans were very keen at the time to maintain their own monopoly on nuclear weapons, of course. They were the only power that had them at the time. And they were concerned about nuclear proliferation. They didn't want to see the, the nuclear technology spread to other countries. They were still interested in schemes for international control. At least some American officials were. The United States had introduced the, something called the Baruch Plan to the United Nations to, to establish an international control system for um, fissile material, at least, that would control the spread of nuclear weapons. Um, and so member, many members of Congress, uh, I think, felt that the passage in the McMahon Act was really consistent with what would be in a... Um, you know, consistent line of U.S. policy after 1945 to maintain the U.S. monopoly on nuclear weapons to control the spread of those weapons to other countries. Um, there are also some background concerns over um, the emergence of espionage and spy scandals, so some concerns about security lapses in the West. There have been a, the Guzenka spy um, scandal broken in Canada uh, a few months earlier in early 1946. Um, and, I mean, there was, was an underlying to some extent, a suspicion that if this knowledge was shared with countries like Britain, close allies like Britain, they might even be able to exploit it for commercial purposes as well. There's a degree of commercial rivalry between the nuclear enterprises of Britain and the United States, which you know, had its um, origins in the wartime years, um, where um, officials could see the post-war 
exploitation of nuclear energy, civil nuclear energy, as, as having important commercial ramifications and not to want to give a competitor advantages in that way as well. But the effect of the McMahon Act was to cut off nuclear collaboration between the United States and Britain for another 12 years until um, that collaboration is restored in 1958 um, by a subsequent Anglo-American agreement. And it's a crucial um, element in the post-war British nuclear story because it means that Britain's nuclear development will have to be an independent one. Britain's scientists and engineers will have to work on nuclear weapon programs from their own resources and their own knowledge, than from the knowledge they've built up um, from their contacts with the Americans and, and their work on the Manhattan Project during the Second World War um, experience, but also from their own, you know, their own their own work, their own investigative researches and knowledge that they'd accumulated in the pre-war years and in the early years of the Second World War, and it was a major undertaking for a country in Britain's position, straight, you know, with its um, economic position um, in the late 1940s to embark upon this kind of um, program. Um, there were some um, reservations in the Treasury over spending so much money on it, but the consensus of opinion was that this had to be done, not least because, and we've talked about Britain's great power status before, but also a speak to, to, for Britain to be able to speak um, on something like, um, not level terms, but at least its voice should be heard with, um, uh, you know, a, a gre to greater effect in, um, in questions of international peace and security, particularly when it, when it came to the United States, in fact. Um, there was a belief that Britain would have greater clout on the international stage if it was a nuclear power. It would be able to uh, talk on, on better terms with the United States um, as its key ally um, in these years as well. You mentioned how this was a major undertaking, but how well known was it within government circles? Because it, it doesn't look like it was known in Parliament, mm. uh, but was it something that people knew it was happening, just not officially? It's very difficult to hide such a big undertaking, of course. It invo involves the work of thousands of different civil servants, scientists and engineers and so on. But there was remarkably little, little, remarkably little public debate and discussion and openness about the early years of the British nuclear program. Um, there was a very um, guarded and small um, announcement in Parliament in May 1948 that atomic research was being carried out in the UK. Um, but then this was then um, covered by what was called a D-notice by the Ministry of Defence. Um, a D-notice was an informal system whereby the press would not pursue particular lines of inquiry um, because they were prohibited to do so for national security reasons. Well, I say prohibited, it's actually denoted. The denoted system was a very informal way of the press um, respecting the, the, the fact that government had drawn certain lines around certain parts of um, the, the types of information which shouldn't be discussed or disclosed to the public more widely. And a denotice was used in May 1948 in relation to this, um, this, 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 this parliamentary um, statement that there shouldn't be further speculation about what was going on. So it was only really at the very end of the um, um, Attlee government and as the Churchill government took power in 1951, in October 1951, that more began to be discussed openly about the progress that was being made with the British nuclear program, not least because um, the date for Britain's first nuclear test was approaching. Um, and it was announced um, in the early years, early, early, early months of the Churchill government that that test would take place um, in 1952, towards the end of 1952, which in fact it did. Um, the, but the, you know, it's very difficult, as I said, to conceal what was going on. There was there were large-scale plant being built around the UK. Uh, you know, uh, nuclear reactors were being um, built. Places like Windscale, uh, Calder Hall, Chapel Cross in Scotland. That these reactors, you know, were ostensibly there to produce, you know, civil nuclear power, but 
plutonium was a very important byproduct of what they were doing, and the plutonium would, of course, be used in Britain's first um, nuclear weapons. And it was that plu- the production of that plutonium was crucial to enabling those first tests um, to go ahead. I think one of the consequences of uh, going public is that one of the main debates generated was whether uh, Britain was actually independent now, an independent nuclear deterrent, or too reliant on the US. Where do you stand on that? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, up to, there's no doubt, I mean, I mean, up to 1957-58, when um, Britain conducts its first nuclear weapon test in 1952, but in 1957-58 it conducts a series of tests um, in the South Pacific, which are thermonuclear weapons, which is an even more powerful, much more powerful type of weapon than the atomic bomb that was exploded in 1945, you know, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and it was tested in the early post-war years. And that, that path of Brit- British nuclear development in the 1950s, up to, as I say, up to 1958, is very much an independent path. Britain develops its own delivery systems, its own means of delivering nuclear weapons through its V-bomber force, its early jet bomber force. Its nuclear weapons um, programs are indigenous programs that don't rely on help from the United States or any other power. Some of the information that had been gleaned from you know, British scientists that worked alongside Americans on the Manhattan Project was very useful, undoubtedly, but a lot of the um, basic research work that had to be uh, done was done very much you know, by Britain alone um, during the 1950s. When you get to 1958, um, you've, um, you have a very, very important shift in the trajectory of British nuclear history through the um, Anglo-American agreement that's made um, in July of that year to collaborate very, very closely on the exchange of nuclear technology and then later also the transfer of some nuclear materials to Britain as well. So that the, Uni- the United States agrees to collaborate more closely on, on nuclear weapons research with the UK to um, help with weapons design work and so on. And the UK also agrees to share its own knowledge and, it, and what it had built up during the 1950 with its American counterparts as well. So some very much closer collaboration that takes place after 1958. And to some, of course, that meant that Britain was curtailing its sense of nuclear independence because now it's more reliant on the United States and its connections with the United States in order to continue to develop its own nuclear weapons. Um, but for British officials, it made sense to work with the Americans because they didn't they did they felt their hands weren't being tied politically still, even though you know because the United States was still you know remained a close British ally, but they didn't feel as though they were necessarily having their hands tied in any particular way, and it was seen as a means to save money because it would be cheaper to use American design information, American experience of testing nuclear weapons, for example, um, rather than Britain to have to stage those tests itself and incur the financial and political costs of staging nuclear tests. So you could use in U- US information or to manufacture British weapons. Because the, the terms of the 1958 agreement meant that not that Britain was actually buying, physically buying US nuclear weapons, it was simply using American information and help in order to still manufacture nuclear weapons in Britain, um, but in collaboration with um, uh, you know, f- from using that American uh, that American help and assistance. Now, that's in the area of nuclear weapons. When it comes to delivery systems, another crucial landmark is reached in 1960 when Britain decides to cancel an uh, indigenous ballistic missile program that had been working on called Blue Streak. Blue Streak was designed to be an intermediate-range ballistic missile, a range of about two, two and a half thousand miles, um, and the design work for that began, began in about 1955. By 1960, the Macmillan government decided that it was becoming too expensive, this project, and decided to cancel it. And instead, they turned to the United States 
for the provision of a successor system to um, to his cancelled Blue Streak um, uh, um, program, and instead um, decided to purchase a missile called, called Skybolt, which was being developed by the United States for launch from an aircraft. It was a, an, an air-launched ballistic missile. And this was designed to be carried by Britain's V-bomber force through the 1960s to preserve the credibility of that V-bomber force during the 1960s. But of course, purchasing Skybolt in the, in the eyes of many critics made Britain much more reliant um, on the United States because it would be reliant on um, the supply of those, um, uh, the delivery of that, um, of that equipment to keep Britain in the nuclear business. Um, and those warnings were in many respects um, brought home in 1962 when the Kennedy administration, much to the shock and alarm of the Macmillan government, decided to cancel the Skybolt program, precipitating the biggest crisis in, in Anglo-American nuclear relations and relations more generally since the Second World War, one could say. And it's that crisis that's then produced um, 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 the Nassau Agreement. Kennedy and Macmillan met at Nassau in the Bahamas in December 1962. And Kennedy finally, to, to, a, degree, and to a degree reluctantly, agreed to provide Polaris, a submarine-launched ballistic missile, as a substitute replacement for Skybolt to the United, um, to the United Kingdom. With certain, um, you know, with certain provisos um, in the agreement, Britain would have to manufacture its own submarines to house those um, Polaris missiles supplied by the Americans and would have to build its own warheads for those missiles, but those warheads would be built with American help and cooperation as well. So the Nassau Agreement of December 1962 keeps the United Kingdom in the nuclear business uh, for the next generation to come. And it's still, of course, a submarine-launched ballistic missile force that Britain has today. So wh why does the Kennedy administration cancel Skybolt, is it, were they, uh, did they have pragmatic reasons or was it <coughs> political because various smaller countries now start having their right. own independent uh, deterrents? Yes, I mean the, the Skybolt cancellation was an incredibly controversial episode um, at, at, at the time and some critics did feel that the Kennedy administration was cancelling Skybolt essentially for political reasons, not because it had any major problems of development but because it did not want to see Britain continue in the nuclear business. The US by this time was very concerned about the problem of nuclear proliferation. It was concerned about the spread of nuclear weapons, particularly in Europe. It did not want to see Germany, above all, acquire West Germany acquire nuclear capabilities. And it felt that um, if Britain continued in the nuclear business, it would be a spur to other European countries, the Germans, for example, to continue in that line. It would also be an spur and encouragement to the French to continue with their nuclear program which, you know, had been underway for several years, um, but was building up momentum in the early 1960s. So the interest of the United States is to, more, is to have more um, centralised control over nuclear forces, not to have independent national nuclear forces. That's really what the Kennedy administration had been saying in 1961 and in 1962, particularly um, Robert McNamara, the US Defence Secretary, given the same famous speech at Ann Arbor, where he attacked the existence of independent nuclear forces. So this all added ammunition to those who felt Skybolt cancellation was politically motivated. But if one examines the documentary record from the US side, it's pretty clear that Skybolt, you, know, you, you, you can see some members of the State Department not being displeased at all that Skybolt is cancelled. But the Defense Department cancelled Skybolt for very pragmatic reasons. It was costing enormous amounts of money to develop this new missile. Its utility, its effectiveness was being questioned by some as an air-launched weapon when submarine-launched ballistic missiles were increasingly becoming available. 
and uh, you know more accurate um, um, with, with more sophisticated um, re-entry systems and, and guidance systems and so on. Um, and so, as I said, this expensive and potentially um, um, you know, long, um, long, long drawn out program of development for the Skybolt missile was, was increasingly being questioned in 1962 in US defense circles. It had been questioned for several years, in fact, but those questions reached a sort of crescendo in 1962. And McNamara in, in November this, this, this takes a decision to cancel in a very, very expensive program. What McNamara perhaps didn't realize and shouldn't have, should have realized more is the political fallout and consequences there would have been for Anglo-American relations for this, for, for, for this decision to cancel. Do we know much about UK public opinion uh, and nuclear weapons uh, in the 50s and the 60s that, that you cover in detail in the book? Well, we do know some things about public opinion. I don't think the opinion polling was particularly scientific, but certainly there were opinion polls being taken. And of course, in the 1950s, there are deep questions and anxieties being raised by certainly a section of the British public about certain particular issues. They included nuclear testing, nuclear testing in the atmosphere and the environment, um, which um, was considered to be you know, an environmental health hazard. Um, but also, of course, the sparring nature of the arms race. And nuclear testing was seen as a very visible way in which um, Britain might be um, contributing to the arms race at that time. There were concerns and questions over the fact that Britain was home to American air bases and American air power in the 1950s. Um, and 1958, you see the formation of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, um, and you see Aldermaston marches take place, thousands of people going, you know, coming on to um, take part in those marches. And for a significant section of the Labour Party in particular, um, nuclear disarmament became a very big issue. Um, having said that, the opinion, opinion polling that was done um, at this time did show a large body of support still for Britain remaining in nuclear power. It wasn't the case that a majority, I don't think, of the, of the electorate was supportive of um, Britain disarming unilaterally at least. Certainly there's widespread support for multilateral disarmament, the desire um, to reduce the level of nuclear weapons to as low as possible or even to eliminate them altogether if possible, but through multilateral negotiations, not through unilateral disarmament. I think that's pretty clear. 1964 um, general election in October um, was fought where the Labour Party was extremely critical of the Conservatives' nuclear policy of maintaining of maintaining independent nuclear deterrent up to that point. And what the Labour Party was arguing instead was that the, not that Britain should disarm unilaterally, but that Britain. Um, should regard its nuclear weapons as pooled, pooled with the Atlantic Alliance as part of a common force rather than maintained independently. And Labour also criticised the Nassau Agreement that was made by the Macmillan government with um, uh, the US administration, the Kennedy administration at the time, as, as making Britain overly dependent on the United States. Um, as, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of critics that say, well, because Britain was um, buying American missiles again, using um, helping, you know, having help um, use of American technology to keep it in the nuclear business was very dependent on the United States and was not truly independent, in other words. There was a fiction being maintained here by the Conservative government, an expensive fiction, in fact, with the purchase of um, the Polaris force. So Labour's, government, Labour's position in 1964 was that Nassau should be renegotiated, that the alliance, you know, the, the, the NATO alliance should be emphasised more by British nuclear policy rather than the independent role of nuclear forces. Now, having said all that, Harold Wilson, the Labour government's um, 
prime minister, event, you know, the, the, the man who wins the election for, as, as, as leader of the Labour Party and becomes prime minister in October 1964, in his later recollections, Wilson actually thought that the nuclear issue may well have cost him votes at the 1964 um, election because he felt the Conservatives um, were on good, you know, were, were succeeding in their message of attacking Labour's policies being anti-nuclear, was kind of missing some of its nuances. And uh, you mentioned Wilson, <coughs> and you also uh, cover a number of governments and prime ministers in the book. How influential were individual prime ministers um, <coughs> in defining the trajectory of uh, nuclear power, <coughs> or was this a case of a set path that they just had to follow? Well, s- prime ministers are very influential when it comes to <coughs> some very, you know, some key decisions on nuclear policy. Um, nuclear policy is very much prime ministerial business in the United Kingdom. Um, these issues are referred very much to the top. But those interventions, those interventions tend to be um, infrequent because they usually come when major decisions and directions and policy are taken, but they are very, very important. Um, nuclear weapons programs, by their very nature, are spread over many, many periods, uh, many, many years. So um, the, actual, the actual path of nuclear development isn't usually de- you know, influenced overly by individual decisions of prime ministers but what can be um, certainly seen is the way in which the general political orientation of a of a prime minister or a government is important for the way nuclear weapons uh, policy develops so for example when Macmillan becomes prime minister in January 1957 he clearly makes restoration you know close anglo-americans uh, american relations after the suez crisis his number one priority um, you know in foreign policy and he really pursues that goal over the next um, 18 months or so very assiduously and assiduously and um, and then he um, uh, he manages to secure um, agreement from President um, Eisenhower in, in uh, October 1957 in a very important visit he makes to Washington in the aftermath of the Sputnik um, Soviet launch of the Sputnik uh, satellite he managed to secure um, American um, agreement to look at their atomic energy legislation to revise it perhaps to allow Britain to have greater access to US nuclear help um, and assistance and that's the that's the breakthrough that it leads to the um, July 1958 Anglo-American nuclear agreement I mentioned before so that was very much you know something that was driven forward by prime ministerial um, direction from the top and by diplomacy by Macmillan over that 18 months or so period after it became um, after he became prime minister, and similarly though, you know, prime ministers take an active role when it comes to um, shaping the defence program, the defence budget, for example. And so, the actual size of Britain's nuclear weapons stockpile, its shape and composition over the longer term, can be partly determined by um, prime ministerial um, desires and preferences when it comes to controlling um, the levels of defence expenditure. The proportion, for example, of expenditure that might be made on conventional forces as opposed to nuclear forces. And again, you can see this um, over time where, um, for example, in the Eden government, um, Eden was prime minister for a relatively short period, but Eden was very concerned to cut costs in defence, and um, you can see during that government the size of the V-bomber force reduced um, from its initial um, um, planned estimated size of about 280 aircraft down to eventually to a size of 144. Uh, by 1957 when Macmillan becomes Prime Minister. So the shape and direction of defence policy generally, which is which is very much um, a Prime, Minister ma- prime Ministerial uh, matter as well, that has knock-on ramifications for um, the nuclear programme undoubtedly um, as well. 
you mentioned at the beginning that an important factor uh, in the decision to pursue uh, to continue pursuing an independent uh, nuclear deterrent was Britain's global status, so the question mm. of prestige as well. Mm. Um, how important uh, did it end up being, did, did, did nuclear power end up being for uh, British power? I think, um, I mean, I think it changes, the perception of this does change over time. I think that when Britain takes its initial decisions to go down the nuclear path in the late 1940s, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the primary consider considerations were about security, um, the fact that Britain had already been a nuclear pioneer, there was a sense of continuity about the program, um, concern about standing alone as well, you know, w against the potential Soviet threat when the United States couldn't be relied on. I think questions about great power status um, become much more important in the 1950s and 1960s, um, once Britain is already a, a nuclear power. Um, and as Britain's kind of relative position vis-a-vis -vis other European power, West European powers, um, is declining because you know French power is being reconstructed um, during the um, uh, 1950s, as is in West Germany, of course. Um, and um, I think within the context of the Western, you know, system of states, and particularly with the Western alliance, but particularly the NATO alliance, um, I think British prime ministers and senior senior ministers consider it increasingly important that Britain maintain its nuclear weapons status in order to be able to speak. Um, with a strong voice within those kind of councils, within those kind of um, circles, particularly as I said, within you know as, as a major as, as a major nuclear power within NATO, that's a very very important consideration for British 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 ministers. It's also an important consideration <coughs> as France develops its own nuclear weapons program um, in the late 50s, well from late 50s through the 1960s as well. France France explodes its first nuclear weapon in 1960 um, and begins to actually deploy, I suppose, a, de a deliverable nuclear weapon, an airborne nuclear weapon uh, on, on the Mirage 4 um, from 1964 onwards. Um, and so France has becomes a recognized military nuclear power in the 1960s. And in that context, it becomes extremely difficult for British prime ministers to contemplate getting out of the nuclear business, I think, leaving France as the only remaining nuclear power in Western Europe. Be because of the, the status and, you know, um, the status um, that would give France within uh, for example, the European Community and um, uh, and so on, and so I think um, you know, for, for for reasons of diplomatic weight and clout within these kinds of organisations within within um, within NATO, and then after um, Britain joins the Euro you know, European Community after 1973 within the um, European Community, it's very important that Britain maintains that kind of particular nuclear status. Of course, Britain is still one one of the permanent members of the European UN, UN Security Council as well, and all those. You know, all five of those P5, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council, are nuclear powers. Um, so there's a certain sort of, you know, a degree of difficulty of getting off that particular bandwagon if, you know, if you're if you're to maintain the, the permanent seat on the UN Security Council. Britain is also, of course, one of the prime, um, uh, you know, most imp you know, one of the initial signatories and one of the powers which had um, promoted and um, done 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 a, done a. a, a uh, done a lot to, to help push forward um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is um, put together in 1968. I mean, primarily through U.S.-Soviet negotiations, but Britain played a supporting role behind the scenes, um, uh, very much so. But Britain has been a very important upholder of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and its regime um, f since that time. And, and Britain is within that treaty is acknowledged as one of the one, you know one of the per, you know one of the recognised nuclear powers, which has a particular status within that treaty regime. 
So there is a lot of different reasons why I think um, internationally it's been difficult. It would be difficult to it would be it's been difficult for British prime ministers to envisage taking what would be a very very dramatic and uh, difficult decision to um, stop nuclear development and to become kind of non-nuclear power. You know, but having said that, it's been contemplated, it's been discussed, primarily for economic reasons, because this is an expensive business to be in um, for, any, for, any, for any government. And at times of economic strain and stress, um, British governments have thought about whether it would, make, it, it would make sense potentially to not develop, you know, another generation of nuclear weapons, to actually scale back its nuclear activity, perhaps even become a non-nuclear weapon state. Um, and that's been discussed at various times, but always, always rejected. Um, which leads nicely to the next question. Uh, do you think that nuclear power, uh, the nuclear deterrent will be, maybe abandoned is not the right word now, but um, will we continue maintaining it in the same way? Or do mm. you think uh, this is starting to change? Maybe well, through treaties and negotiations so that everyone well, starts bringing ta- down their power. Yeah, I mean, Britain's already reduced its stockpile of nuclear weapons quite considerably from obviously from Cold War heights but even since the post-Cold War era now and it declares I can't remember exactly the, the figures but it declares a certain number of you know, a maximum numbers in the stockpile and a certain number of which are sort of classed as operational as well um, and they're relatively no numbers compared to um, any, of, any of the other um, major nuclear powers even compared to France as well which has higher, higher, higher numbers um, so um, you know, Britain's already taken steps to reduce its um, n- you know, nuclear stockpile to low- its lowest levels um, since the 1950s, the early 1950s, probably. But um, to to go to to go to even lower proportions would be very difficult, considering the kind of nuclear system the you know United Kingdom has, with its four Trident submarines, only one of which is always on guaranteed to be on patrol at any one time, with only a certain number of missiles deployed on that submarine, with a certain number of of warheads to go any lower than that would be a kind of difficult prospect. I mean, Britain only maintains one one nuclear warhead now. That's the Trident warhead. It's, it's got rid of all its other nuclear weapons. To to go any lower would be quite difficult. Kind of operationally, you'd have to probably make a decision to get to stop it altogether, to get out of the business altogether. And that, as I said before, is a difficult would be a difficult proposition for any British government to take for political reasons. Um, certainly, domestically, politically, um, British governments, particularly conservative governments have found it very useful politically to continue to maintain that um, um, the, the Conservatives would maintain you know, a, a British independent nuclear deterrent. They're committed to that, have been for many, many years. It's a very, very important part of their electoral plank, and it seems to be a you know, popular part of their electoral plank, as far as one can see from opinion polls and so on. But again, as I said before, the great, the great driver against that is the cost, is the sheer cost of developing you know, another generation, another a set of... Um, Submarines, which would have to, have to be built to replace the current class of Trident submarines, the Vanguard class, which is currently operational, to go through a whole, another whole process of nuclear development for, nu- for a new nuclear warhead for um, the, Trident, uh, the Trident missile system, um, which is needed for, for generations to come. All this is a ex- very expensive business and a very, very deci- big decisions for governments to take when uh, budgets are squeezed for all, all other kinds of reasons as well. So those kinds of trade-offs always being made by, by, by government. But I, I think I, w- I would expect that... Um, uh, and one other thing, of course, to mention as well is that a lot of jobs are dependent upon, upon, upon the um, nuclear enterprise, you might say, not just you know, in the submarine building business, but in the nuclear weapons production um, facilities, 
um, all the support facilities that go into maintaining um, a British um, nuclear submarine force. There are thousands of jobs um, uh, at stake in, in this program. And so those kind of political considerations also, also come, in, come into play. So I would, and, and it's a very, one other factor of course, it's a very uncertain world out there. I mean, it, at times one can see, one could see, I think, you know, at a time in, say, in the 19, late 50s and 1960s when um, the NATO alliance seemed very solid, the United States commitment to the defense of Western Europe seemed, seemed, seemed strong, the rhetorical commitment of American presidents to the defense of Western Europe was very strong, the US nuclear nuclear presence and nuclear guarantees seem to be very strong, then um, the case could be made, I think, for why Britain continued to maintain its own sort of independent nuclear stance when it had, when it could ultimately, um, you know, it, it could ultimately um, rely on the United States, or it's very, very difficult to envisage how it could ever engage in any kind of independent nuclear action or needed this kind of last resort. But, but now in this uncertain world we face now, I think for British governments a temptation would be to say, well, you know, we st we're still very uncertain. You know, how, can, how can we predict what the world is going to look like in 10 or 20 years' time? And so perhaps we d do need some kind of um, insurance policy or guarantee against that kind of um, eventuality. And that really is why that's the ultimate argument that, that governments would use for, for maintaining this independent deterrent. It's a kind of last resort weapon. It's the kind of last resort insurance policy that, that could be... Um, that could be um, used, they would say, if all the other chips were down, or could be threatened to be used, which is the essence of deterrence. I mean, the government maintains that, you know, maintains a very strong position about um, its belief in deterrence, nuclear deterrence. It's the threat of retaliation which would prevent um, an attack on the United Kingdom and its essential, you know, really, really essential national interests. This was Professor Matthew Jones, and this was another episode of Our Histories. Thank you for listening.